I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to, uh, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Chad. Well, it's good to see you guys. My name is Cody. I am one of the pastors here. I'm usually up here playing, but uh, we have a great team, and, and I love that we can just have them leading worship, and, it, and it's just wonderful. Um, we're continuing in the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to get into it here, but I, I think it's important that we frame a little bit of what um, we've seen so far. And actually, we want to start with something that is not actually in the book of Acts, but is also in the book of Acts in the sense that the book of Acts is really a response to this reality, and that is that Jesus died and then rose again. The reality of his death and resurrection, although it is not actually in this book, is in this book, is why this book exists. The power specifically of the resurrection shapes everything that happens in this book. So we can't really understand the book of Acts without understanding that this is growing out of that moment. This, this thing that happens changes the nature of how people respond to God and how these guys, these men and women are acting in the Lord. So that happens, and then after that, after he is resurrected, he appears to not only the disciples, but about to 500 other people, men and women, whom he shows himself to, shows that, not only, that he is actually alive, flesh and blood, really alive. And he does this, and then he does something unexpected. He leaves. He ascends, and he promises something that he has promised before, that the Old Testament has already promised. But that was the coming of the Holy Spirit, that he is going to pour his spirit out upon his people. That something better, he even says, is coming than his presence. So he promises the Holy Spirit. After that, the apostles and the other followers are waiting together. They're praying together. They're singing together. They're, they're reading scripture together, anticipating this moment that was coming. In the meantime, they're also... Uh, decide because of what they're reading that they need to replace Judas. Judas was the man who betrayed Jesus and who later kills himself. And so they need to replace him with another apostle. So they do that. And that's kind of where we're at in the story. Um, this takes about 50 days. And we know that it takes 50 days because the day of Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. 
So it's a relatively short period of time, all of this stuff is happening, not even really a full two months. And now it is Pentecost. And we already see something different. I think it's important to note uh, that the people are acting differently. Peter is, the, is pretty much the only character we really hear from, the only person we hear from in Acts chapter 1. But if you remember Peter from the Gospels, this is a different person. The resurrection has already changed Peter. He is acting in boldness. He is acting with wisdom. So we see a change, and we see already God moving in power. But then Pentecost happens, and something different happens. Pentecost changes everything about the church. It defines the church. It makes it unique. But before we get to that, I think it's important. There, there's a few things that Luke assumes that we know about Pentecost that because we don't celebrate it on a regular basis, we don't know about Pentecost that I think is, is important. First off, uh, Pentecost uh, was 50 days after Passover. This is one of the regular things they would do. This wasn't just a one-off event. This was every year they would celebrate Pentecost. Um, and this was one of those festivals where Jews from all over the world would travel to. There were some ones that they didn't have to go to Jerusalem to celebrate, uh, like Passover, for example. But they would celebrate this by going from all over the place. So this wasn't something you could just stay in your hometown. You had to travel to Jerusalem to really celebrate Pentecost. We see this in the story, this presence of a lot of people who are not Jews living in Judea, which means that they are speaking a bunch of different languages. They, are, they, they, they do not speak Aramaic, which would have been what they commonly spoke there. Uh, they might not even speak Greek naturally. Right? There's just a lot of different people coming together at this moment. And this would have been every single year. This is what happens. So this is what's happening at Pentecost. The other thing that I think is significant, so Pentecost was a, a festival to celebrate kind of the first harvest, thanking God for the harvest. But by this time in Israel, not only was it that, but it was the day that they remembered the giving of the law at Sinai. It's the day that they would gather together and remember that God gave Moses the law at Sinai. So that's what they were all together gathered there for. That's why the disciples were there gathered, because they were celebrating Pentecost along with the other Jews at the time. So let's read, I, I, I want to read the first four verses, kind of knowing that about Pentecost, because that should inform some of our ways of understanding this. So starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what we see in this moment and what we're going to see through the rest of the passage is, is, is I think, the, the birth of the church. This is where the church as a unique entity in history begins. And there's something special about it. There's something that we need to see that is unique about the church that is different from the people of God prior to the church. And that's kind of what we're going to do. That's, that, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing is looking at, so what is the church how do we understand the church in light of how it's started? And the first thing we see 
And this is the most fundamental of all of them that makes the church unique is that the church is a people filled with the Spirit. The church is a people filled with the Spirit. Now, if, if the language of the Spirit is, is new to you, uh, so in a general sense, we believe that God is one God in three persons, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's who we're talking about when we're talking about the Spirit. We're talking about the third person of the Trinity. Now, one thing that I think we'll, we'll oftentimes mistake, though, is that we think that this Holy Spirit just now shows up in the Bible, that this is the first time we're getting a glimpse of the Holy Spirit, which is not true. The Spirit is God. He's been there from the beginning. He was there before creation. We actually see his presence at creation. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and, vo and void, and, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. We see the Spirit speaking to Moses in the burning bush. We see him leading Israel through cloud and fire through the wilderness. The Holy Spirit, this isn't even the first time we've seen the Holy Spirit in the New Testament narrative. So when Jesus is baptized, the Holy, God the Father speaks over it, and the Holy Spirit ascends as a dove upon Jesus at that moment. We see, we've seen the Holy Spirit before in this story. So the fact that he shows up now is not necessarily new. He's been around. But the way he shows up is important and is unique. And I think we can understand the uniqueness by looking at two other places that he shows up in the Old Testament. And that is when he, the Spirit comes to fill the tabernacle, and when he shows up to fill the temple. So I want to actually read those, because having just read this, I think we're going to spot intentional similarities. So first is in Exodus chapter 40, and if you don't have your Bibles, it should be up on the screen as well. And this is basically just the end of the book of Exodus. So in the, when Moses received the law, one of the many things that it said to do is they, they were to build this thing called the tabernacle. This was basically the temple on wheels. It was a portable temple. It was like an RV, but a temple. Um, it's a really bad way of describing it. It was a much more special thing than that. But, um, but they, they just finished it. Starting in verse 33, it says, And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Next time we see something very similar is in the book of Second Chronicles. So this is right after Solomon finishes building the temple. And Solomon is dedicating this. He's blessing the people. They're reaffirming their commitment to the covenant, to the law. And he prays this prayer of dedication, which is one of the most incredible prayers in the whole Bible. After he finishes this, starting in chapter 7, verse 1 of Second Chronicles, he says this, And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer... 
fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. What we see at Pentecost, and I, and I, and I, and I think seeing it in kind of the, the larger biblical story, is this is the third time God has filled the temple. This is the third filling of the temple. Just like he did with the tabernacle, just like he did with, in Solomon's temple, he is coming and filling the temple. So there is intentional similarities here. That's what's happening. He is filling the temple. But I think where we understand the difference is in looking at the difference between what's happening when he fills the temple at Pentecost versus what happened when he filled the tabernacle and the temple then. See, with both the tabernacle and the temple, one, God was filling a place. He was filling a specific place. Secondly, he was filling it but not remaining in it. And this is something important. This is something where actually when you study kind of comparative religious studies of the time, this is something very unique to Israel that set them apart. God did not dwell in the temple. That was not his house. That's not where he lived. God would come and meet with his people at the temple. But even Solomon in his prayer of dedication said, this house that we have built is nothing that can contain you. There is nothing that can hold the power and the glory and the vastness of God. So yes, he filled the temple then, but he did not remain there. And thirdly, people couldn't go into the temple at the time that he was filling it. They make a big deal about that in the tabernacle. They, make, they, they talk about that when they're talking about the temple. That there was still something that needed to happen to bridge that gap to where God could actually fill his people. And this is how we see the church as unique. This is what makes the church different from Israel. Is that the church is a people who are filled with the Spirit. And that the Spirit doesn't leave. It's not a place that he comes and fills. It is a people he comes and fills. And he doesn't do it temporarily. He does it with permanence. He comes and fills his church. You know, it, it, it's interesting to see how God kind of defines people throughout the Bible. And, and, and it's important to look back on that. In Genesis 1, for example, God defines all people, not just God's people, all people as made in his image. That's one of the reasons why we start the story there all the time. Because I, I, I think we forget that. That yes, we are sinners. And, we'll, and I'll say that in just a second. But we are all made in God's image. And that changes the way we interact with one another. That changes the way we respond to one another. And then in Genesis 3, and this is where we get this very challenging tension, is that yes, we are all made in the image of God, but yes, we are all sinners. We are all broken by that reality. We hold that tension as we move forward. Through Abraham, God's people become defined by election and promise, by choice and promise. God chooses Abraham 
to become the father of the people who will bring about the blessing of all nations. So it's God's people becomes defined through his choice and through his promise. Later in Moses, we see God's people defined through the salvation and law, through the rescue of his people out of Egypt into the promised land and by the giving of the law. That is how God's people, up until Jesus, is defined and understood. There's other things that, that change that, the reality of Davidic kingship and other things like that that, that affect the messianic understanding of God's people. But they are ultimately a people defined by election and promise. They are a people defined by salvation and law. In the New Testament, what we, do, what we see is not necessarily a new definition, but a more completed reality. Once again, the church is defined by salvation and by law. But this time we are defined by the complete salvation of Christ's death and resurrection. We are defined by the complete filling of the Spirit, the new law written on man's heart. This was kind of one of these aha moments as I was studying this and as we were talking about this and preaching collective and other things like that. The fact that they were all gathered there remembering the giving of the law at Sinai. And that was the day God chose to pour out the new law on man's hearts. That at Pentecost, we received the new law. Not that he completely erased the old law, but it was now the law that we could enter into through the power of his spirit. The law not written on stone or parchment, but the law written on man's hearts. That's what happens at Pentecost. And this, this means that we are filled with the Spirit today. This is the implication that we need to see and understand. That we are filled with the Holy Spirit. This church is filled with the Holy Spirit. I feel like I, I, as I think about that, it's, it's kind of like in The Force Awakens, when Ray figures out that she has the force in her, she's kind of like, do I use this? How do I do this? All that stuff. The Holy Spirit is not the same as the force. It would be cool to have the force, though. I'll just make a side note, because then, like, when my kids are like, I don't really want broccolis, and I'll be like, these are the broccolis you want to eat. These are the broccolis you seek. And they'll be like, these are the broccolis I, I want to eat, and you're right. And I wouldn't have to, like, get up to get the remote. I could just that. So yes, the force is cool, okay? That's all I'm saying. So all, you, all that's been proven right now is that, you know, half of you understood it, the other half had just been confirmed that I'm a big nerd. Um, uh, but, but, and I, I should say this, it should be obvious, but the Holy Spirit and the fact that we're filled by the Spirit is even better than being filled with the force. Just, I feel like I, that needs to be clarified. Um, uh, but, but that's the reality. We, we have a power that is far beyond what we can do. And it's not because of anything special in us. It's not because we're a particularly good people. What we're going to learn is because God had a different plan in mind and needed, needed a different vehicle in his people to accomplish it. So we're not just the people who can meet with God's spirit in the temple. We are actually the temple filled with his spirit. And I want to say one more thing about this is that 
I think when we talk about the filling of the Spirit, so oftentimes we are talking about it individually. I'm filled with the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. And in reality, yes, that is true. The way he fills the church is he fills individuals within the church. But that is not the priority of Scripture. It's not the way it's talked about in Scripture. God did not fill people, but he came to fill a people. To form us into a community. This is not just filling you. This is filling us. And that clarification matters in the implications of what the Spirit is doing, not just in us, but through us. So we see that the church is a people filled with the Spirit. That is what makes us unique. Secondly, not just uh, that we are a people filled with the Spirit, but we are a people with a common language. That the church is a people with a common language. See, it, when I first read this, and honestly, kind of up until a few years ago, whenever I'd read Acts 2, I would always just think it was kind of a weird story. Like, I'm like, I know this is important, but there's just, like, there's tongues, and there's fire, and they'd start talking. Like, is this really the way God's spirit was meant to look when it was poured out on his people? It just seemed strange. Um, and, and it does seem strange, I think, if we take it out of the context of what God is needing to do with regards to his people. See, God is doing a lot of things through Pentecost. He's, he's fulfilling a lot of prophecy through Pentecost. The only reason I didn't go into it is because Peter in his sermon that we'll look at next week goes into it quite a bit. But this is the pouring out of God's spirit on his people is something the prophets talked about a lot. Joel is talking about the day, that will, the day of the Lord when the spirit is poured out upon people. The Psalms talk about it. Jeremiah talks about the new heart and new law that is written on his people. So this is all being fulfilled in Pentecost, but there was something else that needed to be dealt with, and that was what happened with language at Babel. If God didn't deal with the curse of Babel, then this new people that he was forming, not because they were born of Abraham, but because they were born of the Spirit, this curse of language that started at Babel needed to be fixed. So we need to, under, to understand what is happening at Pentecost. I think we need to understand what's happening in Babel, what's happening with language. Because what happens with language on the Tower of Babel is that language goes from being something unifying, something that can be utilized for harmony, for peace, for other things like that, to be a weapon of discord and division. We read this. So... In Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city and to see the city and the tower with which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off the building 
the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So at Babel, language goes from being something that can be utilized for oneness, for efficiency, for working together, to be something that divides people, that pushes people apart. And I don't really feel like I even need to convince you of that. I think our experiences would all teach us that that's true. You know, a a funny moment uh, where this became a reality to me, um, Lauren and I got married. We we went on our honeymoon. We went to a hotel uh, down in uh, Mexico, and we arrived there. There was a a fruit basket filled with fruit uh, welcoming us, and uh, in there, there was uh, some plums that Lauren really liked. I was a a stud of a husband, so I I thought, uh, I need to impress my new wife, and uh, figure out how I can get her some more plums, because she really, I mean, she really liked the plums. And uh, so I called down there, um, down to room service, and I can speak Spanish. I'm not fluent, but I can speak it, but I didn't know the word for plum. And so I did something that, in hindsight, made absolutely no sense, because what I should have done was just looked up the word for plum in Spanish. Um, What I did was I called down there, and instead of saying it in English, which many of them knew English, And instead of saying it in Spanish, which I could have looked up, I said it in a language that didn't exist. I said, uh, hey, we would really like some plumes. And there was a pause on the other end of the phone. So yeah, some some plumes. They're like, plumes? Plumes. So I I said it, I said the English word pronounced in Spanish context, which is not a language, it's not an actual word. Which, so it shouldn't have been a surprise that I was having a hard time communicating with him. And, and like, Lauren is, like, looking at me. She's shaking her head, like, what? What is your problem? Like, like deeply regretting so many of the choices that she made. And, 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 I, and I'm saying, no, plumes, plumes. And, like, this cycles through, like, multiple people on the other end of the phone, trying to figure out what it is that I'm asking them for and saying, like. And what's sad is, like, I didn't change course at all. Like, it didn't occur to me that, hey, this isn't working, look up the word, or something like that. Uh, I just kept at it, and finally some guy comes on, talking to them, and they're like, oh, blooms. I'm like, yes, blooms. Finally, we figured out it was this breakthrough. Finally, yes. Cross-cultural communication at its finest. So like, okay, we'll bring it right up to you. Hung up the phone. I was feeling, I was feeling proud. This is a good moment. I'm leading my family well. And uh, they show up. It was very well prepared, very well presented with a giant bowl filled with prunes. And, uh, and so they brought it in. Laura knew exactly what had happened. I knew exactly what had happened. We said, thank you. I ate a prune just to, you know, so they didn't feel bad about it. I've never eaten a prune since then. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, like... It, it was, just, it was just stupid. You know, like, uh, I should have spoken at least a real language. That would have helped. But the truth is, language is confusing. And not just, like, in funny ways. And I think we all have those stories. But in, in some not-so-funny ways. Language causes confusion. Language causes division. When we don't understand something, when we, don't, when we are confused about something, that breeds in us fear. We begin to fear people we can't understand. 
Language is the root of all this stuff. So when we ask, where was the traces of racism? Where's the traces of nativism? Where's the traces of this? We're going to protect ourselves first. This idea of we are going to isolate ourselves from those who are different, it comes from Babel. It comes from the fact that we don't speak the same language. And language is even more complicated than that. We can be actually speaking the same language without speaking the same language. Do you know what I mean by that? We can say one thing and somebody takes it to mean something completely different from what we intended. Language is confusing. And God knew that if he is going to form a people not based off of their relationship to Abraham, but form a people now built on the spirit of all types of peoples, that language couldn't be a method of dividing. That the curse of Babel needed to be reversed. And that's what we see at Pentecost. The curse of Babel is reversed, and we are all given a common language of the Holy Spirit. A language that breeds unity as opposed to discord. A language that brings harmony, brings justice, that brings peace as opposed to war. I want to read Acts 2, 5 through 11, because we'll see kind of the way this ends up being played out after they begin doing this. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We have been given in Pentecost a common language of the Spirit. Now, I want to clarify what I mean by that. Because uh, there is a conversation in the church about the nature of the gift of tongues. And it's an important conversation to have. And we will be forced to kind of have it later, uh, it, whether in the book of Acts or in other books if we go through them. Fortunately, I don't have to deal with it here. <laughs> um, because it doesn't really get into it. It, it. It's actually fairly clear what it's talking about here. So in this moment, the gift of tongues is not that God is giving them a spiritual language that is separate from any other languages. God has given them the ability to speak languages that they didn't otherwise know. Is Galileans who speak Aramaic being able to speak Egyptian, being able to speak Greek and, and connect with people from Medes and, and Phrygia and other places that I never heard of and don't exist anymore. They're being the, given the ability to speak in those tongues so that they might declare the mighty works of God. That's what's happening. And it's not... And it's not like Google Translate or something like that where this all of a sudden happens and they're just saying what's on their mind. God is actually kind of overwhelming them and speaking through them in these various languages. So that's what's happening here. And it's important that we understand that um, because of what it means for the nature of the church and what happens when the Spirit fills the church. When the Spirit filled the church, we were given a common language a language of unity, a language that unites us because the Spirit is dwelling in all of us. When I was thinking through kind of 
how to how to explain this and how to understand this. Uh, I thought about it for a while, then I thought I should have thought of this first uh, because I think music is an actual is a great example of what I mean. I could fill an entire orchestra with people who speak different languages, who could never communicate with one another in any other context. I could set the same piece of music in front of them and they could play it and they could play it beautifully. That's what I'm talking about. It's not that he forces us all to leave our uniqueness behind and forms us into kind of some monolithic language and something like that. He takes it and he gives us a common song to play. He gives us not only a common song, but the ability to play it. That is what the Spirit is doing in the church. That is the common tongue, the common language, the common song of the Spirit that we all get to participate in playing now. So we have to ask, what does this mean? What are the implications of this common language? At the very least, it means that the church should be a place not of division, of discord, not of, not of hatred and isolation, but the church should be a place of unity and harmony. The church should be a place where people who have no business being in the same room together are in the same room. And we see this play out even in the narrative of the Bible, uh, of the rest of Acts. See, in a few chapters, we're going to meet a man named Stephen. Stephen is this incredible man of God, a deep friend of these people, who doesn't even make it through his first sermon. He gets killed at the end of his first sermon before he even gets to what I would consider the good part. He gets killed. The man overseeing this death is a man named Saul. Many of you know Saul later renames himself Paul after, after Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul is brought into this community. And this isn't like years separated. This is a few days. This man that just oversaw the murder of your friend is now being brought into your community. And this happens over and over and over again. Jews and Gentiles that would never be caught dead eating with one another share a common table, share a common Lord. God is working through this common language, through this common song to bring people who have nothing to do with each other into the same room worshiping the same God. And not just that, but being one people. The Holy Spirit, when he fills the church, and the church, remember, is filled now, fills it in such a way that brings people that have nothing to do with each other together into one place and into one people. And that has deep implications for how we interact and how we live in this world. This is one of the reasons why we do all of Life Night. Um, not only, so there's really two things driving it. We, we want, first off, we want to have empathy. Like I said before, Genesis 1 says we are all made in God's image. So our first all of Life Night was with uh, the Somali refugee community, which were predominantly Muslim uh, community. But we, we realized that because of where we are, we might have a different view of this people than is actually true. And if we are called as Christians to love everybody, to love our neighbors, then we need to at least know them. We need to at least understand them. We need to at least seek peace. So we did that there. Um, with this next one, I think it, it's, it's that, but it's also this idea of understanding the fact that God's church is filled with a lot of people that are really different from us. And that is a good thing. So we're going to be meeting with people who were once prisoners and who are now 
um, um, out of prison and transitioning back into regular life. Um, and I've gotten to meet a number of these prisoners, and, and let me tell you, like, I have very little to nothing in common with many of them. Um, and many of them, and I don't want to say all of them, but most of them are, were actually guilty of the things they went to prison for. But when you talk with them, when you meet with them, when we worship together, when we hear them speak of the word, there is something different. There is something binding in there that goes deeper than my background. It goes deeper than my place. It goes deeper than all of the other ways that I could define myself. And that's what I hope we get to experience when we come together in that. That's why we do that. Because we are a people not only filled with the Spirit, but a people with a common language, the language of the Spirit, the song that we all are privileged to get to play. So we are all those things. And then one, one other thing we see, another thing that we see, is that we are a, the church is a people of worship. Like I said, these, they weren't just saying what was on their minds. God, through his spirit, was speaking through them in these tongues. And we get to find out what it was that he was saying. They were declaring the mighty works of God. They were worshiping. That's what we do when we worship. We just say out loud all the things that we see about God. We respond to that. We, we declare his mighty works. That's the language that we get to be. That's the song that we get to sing. And yes, we need to do that on Sundays, and hopefully we continue to do that on Sundays. That's one of the things, as we were worshiping earlier, as we were singing these songs, I'm so thankful for these songs, that we get to sing these songs over and over again, reminding ourselves of the great and mighty works of God. But this goes beyond church. The truth is, when the Spirit speaks in the church, it is always speaking this. It is declaring to the world and to each other the mighty works of God. It means we need to be constantly reminding ourselves, constantly reminding each other that the same God who rescued Israel out of Egypt, the same God who rose Jesus Christ from the dead is the same God living in us. He is the same God. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. We can seek justice with boldness. We can be loving and forgiving because of what God has done, because that God is within us. We can be loving and forgiving even when people don't deserve it. We can show mercy. We can seek peace. We can have a confident hope because we remember that God is a God who keeps his promises. And that same God is living in us now. We are a people of worship. This is the song that we get to sing. Lastly, we, we, we see this in, in kind of the, the last part is that we are a people for mission. So not only are we a people filled with the Spirit, not only are we a people uh, uh, with a common language, not only are we a people of worship, we are a people for mission. Read just the last two verses in this section. And I don't, it's not up on the screen. So after all this stuff, it says, and, they, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So this was done in the hearing of people. This was done in front of people. The languages that they were speaking were languages that not the people speaking them could understand, but the people hearing them could understand. Now, yes, there are some haters 
There's always haters, and haters are going to hate. We thank Taylor Swift for reminding us of that. But for the most part, they're amazed, they're perplexed. They want to know what's going on. The Spirit was given not to individuals for their edification, but to a people for the sake of God's mission. God gave us the Spirit for his mission. This should deeply change the way we interact in church. This has incredible significance for how we come and understand what we're even doing here. We are not coming to be fed. We're not coming to see how the Spirit can make us better. We're not coming to see how the Spirit can make us happier or more like whatever it is. We are coming here because the Spirit has called us into a community for his mission. We are coming to do that mission. Now, God edifies us through the mission, but we are not edified as an end in and of itself. I love uh, Chris Wright's quote on this. It says, It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. This is why he created a unique people. It is not because we were particularly awesome. I know me. I know some of you. We're not that great. It's supposed to be funny, not mean. <laughs> but that's not why he did this. He wasn't like, oh, well, the Israelites were really bad, so I'll find some better people to form a new community. He did this because of his mission, because there's an urgency now. After Christ's death and resurrection, there's an urgency to this greater vision of all tribes, all nations bowing down before the king. All of them knowing the power of God's good news. And he needed a vehicle to support that in the world, and he created the church. That's why the Spirit fills us. It is for the sake of God's mission. Um, I, I have... Uh, played music my whole life. I, I've, I, uh, before I could talk, I could sing. Like, I, I, I just loved to sing. I started playing piano when I was six. Played it through, like, took piano lessons through the 10th grade. I'm still not very good. Um, you know, when my third grade orchestra teacher came out and showed us all the instruments, I saw the upright bass and was like, I, I want to play that. I was this lengthy, weird, awkward third grader playing the upright bass. Played that, learned guitar in, in junior high, drums in high school. Just played music my, my whole life. Been in bands since I was in junior high. They were not good. They were very bad bands. But I've been in bands my whole life. Music has been a deep part of, of my life. And there's been a few things that in doing that have become kind of very basic principles for how I conduct myself as a musician and how I conduct myself as a leader. First is that I... Uh, I always play with people better than me. That has nothing to do with the illustration, but that's a good um, thing to know. Uh, but one is that we all serve the song. That's something that we talk about. And anybody who serves in the band has probably heard me say that, is that we all serve the song, which means that there's going to be times when we play really boring parts. There's going to be times when we just don't play because that's what the song demands. And there's going to be times when we play really interesting, really fun, energetic things that take creativity and skill, all of those things. But we don't choose when we do that. We submit ourselves to the song. We serve the song. 
The second thing is that good songs go somewhere. There is dynamics to a song. It is moving in a direction. Good songs go somewhere. They are taking you somewhere. They are ending somewhere. I'm not saying that all songs go somewhere. Just good songs go somewhere. So this is something that, that, that has been a, a big part of the way I lead music, the way I, I participate in music. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about this, I, I want to say the same thing to us. We all serve the song. We all serve the song. We all get to play our part in it. Sometimes it's going to be plotting. Sometimes it's going to be exciting. Sometimes it's going to be sitting out and watching other people take it. But we all serve the song. And the good thing is that we're playing a really good song that's going somewhere. Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, for the gift of the Holy Spirit that you are dwelling in us now, Lord. We pray that you would work with us and in us in power. Lord, that you would go forth through us. Lord, drawing disparate communities together. Lord, taking your mission and making it your mission. Making it what you see. Making it your vision. God, that we could be... uh, active in the way we play. God, we thank you for this incredible gift. Lord, I pray that you would continue to move in us. In Jesus' name, amen.